Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Sam remains Brother Coakley's, but Vince is away. And so today you've got uh, recovering congressman and legend in his own mind, J.D. Hayworth, behind the microphone. And your chance to weigh in, toll free from any place, on the Ingalls Market talk line, one 800 928-1110. Little less than a half hour from now. If you thought that Mayberry, the real Mayberry was Mount Airy, North Carolina, a new book will set you straight. We'll speak with noted author John Rayleigh about his new book, and talk about a book signing, all sorts of stuff. That comes up in a little less than a half an hour from now. Now, as a broadcaster, and people would ask uh, when I was in Congress, what are you going to do after this? I said, well, you know, I've been given temporary stewardship of this office. My opponents emphasize the word temporary. I emphasize the word stewardship. But if I should finish second or take my leave some other way, I imagine I'd go back to broadcasting. And that's what I've done. But uh, yes, I've also become a man of letters. The Times Media Group of newspapers in Arizona and California, well, most of the Arizona papers carry a weekly column from yours truly. And I want to share my latest with you in hopes that it is a cautionary note, not that it will come true, but that it is cautionary. It's entitled, Cruelest Month Invites a Cruel Fate. T.S. Eliot made the celebrated observation that April is the cruelest month in his critically acclaimed poem, The Wasteland published back in 1922. Now, a century later, a small group of U.S. senators gathered late in that cruel month to formulate a cruel fate for our nation. You see, under the banner of bipartisanship, these senators have proclaimed that they are practical problem solvers. In reality, they will create an even larger problem delivering amnesty to the millions of illegal aliens who have flooded into our country and who continue to cross our porous southern border with the complete cooperation of the Biden administration. Now, you might think bipartisan means Republicans and Democrats working across party lines to achieve common-sense public policy. (coughs) Wrong. In Washington, The truly accurate definition of bipartisan is quite different. Swamp Speak defines it as Republicans caving in to Democrats and their media cheerleaders to enact policies at odds with GOP promises. And that was the real purpose behind the late April meeting among a quartet belonging to the world's most exclusive club. For the Democrats, it involved Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and 
Senator Alex Padilla of California, who chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration. For the Republicans, Senator John Cornyn of Texas was joined by Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Because three of the four will not face voters again until 2026, they're essentially immune from current political pressure. The fourth, Alex Padilla, will try to win a full six-year term this fall. Now, given California's transformation from Golden State into third world wannabe, the freshman senator probably considers his role in formalizing this final amnesty will not only guarantee his place in history, but keep him in the Senate for as long as he wishes to remain. And make no mistake, final full amnesty is exactly the goal here. But the two Republicans who are part of this working group are rationalizing that their involvement will somehow bring improvements to any final legislative product. Do not look for John Cornyn or Tom Tillis to get half a loaf or even three thin slices of bread. In fact, they'll probably end up with a couple of crumbs and the United States will end up as a nation profoundly changed. While it's true that the Senate declined to take up an earlier House-passed bill, that stalled legislation provides clues about what a final product may include. Quote, temporary legal status for some illegal border crossers and measures to, quote, streamline immigrant processing. Tom Tillis, who despite a near-death political experience in his first re-election bid, still doggedly clings to the National Chamber of Commerce vision of an unfettered flow of foreign workers, depressing wages for Americans, and shifting health care costs for these new workers onto taxpayers. And yet Tom somehow claims with a straight face that his bipartisan efforts will actually help the country. Quote, this is the time to maybe set politics aside a little bit and get good policy in place so we can do our part to lessen the burden the people are feeling here in this country. Tillis said, mm -hmm. North Carolina's junior senator is mistaken to believe that his newfound allies across the aisle will ever set politics aside. The political calculus is stunningly simple. Democrats want cheap votes. Republicans like Tillis want cheap labor. But with 60 votes needed to pass this bill, who are the 10 Republicans who we can expect to see vote aye? Well, let's begin with the three most likely to abandon their party, Romney of Utah, Murkowski of Alaska, and Collins of Maine. Then come the Republican retirees looking to line up lobbying work as former senators, Shelby of Alabama, Blunt of Missouri, Burr of North Carolina, Portman of Ohio, and Toomey of Pennsylvania. Even look for the GOP leadership to provide a couple of votes. Whip John Thune of South Dakota and lawyer Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. And voila! Ten Republican votes for amnesty with Tom Tillis to spare. Now expect John Cornyn uh, to abandon this bill at some point. His Texas constituents will set him straight. But conceivably, up to five more GOPers could vote yes. And in that fashion, 
Republicans will again snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in the Senate and richly deserve the dubious distinction of the stupid party. Gee, sorry if that sounds cruel. Now, you may think that sounds unrealistic. You may think, J.D., you are trying to scare us. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I've been around and seen these stunts pulled in the Senate before. Don't doubt me on this. But if you want to disagree, give me a call. 1-800-928-1110. Lindsay, when we come back, it's J.D. for Vince. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Free from any place. It's our Ingalls Market Talk Line, 1 800 928 1110. And check it in on line six. It's Steve. Hi, Steve. Steve, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Hey, now I can hear you, brother. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, J.D., and I appreciate you so much. You are willing to show the other side of the coin about some of these career politicians, and I got some news for you, okay? Yes, sir. I'll do this as quick as I can, J.D. Um, I had a personal experience with Pat McCrory a couple of years back. I went to a banquet that a veterans group puts on for giving out scholarships to the top ROTC students in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. And I sat beside none other than Pat McCrory. I was dressed in a double-breasted suit with a nice silk tie, nice shoes, but I have long hair to my shoulders and a beard. He never acknowledged I even sat down beside him. And then when they called and asked for the Vietnam veterans to come up on stage, I went up on stage with my fellow brothers. And when I came back to my seat, I got the politically correct answer. Thank you for your service. He wow. never shook my hand, never asked my name, and turned right back away from me. That's well, real polite, Pat McCrory. Well, yeah. now look, I'm not, you know, I'm not taking sides in this thing, but everybody has a bad day. Now, was he caught up talking to other people at the table? Was somebody dominating his time, or do you think he just had it out for you? Okay, all right, let's get away from the personal and go to his political But wait, no, Now, wait a minute. You hit him with a personal attack, so I'm just asking in your evaluation, what, you know, if, if he had not said anything to you at all, okay, I can, I'm but I, I'm just, here. you know, but again, I'm just because the one, I'll just tell you, as a, as a guy who used to do this, I lived in mortal fear that somehow I would shortchange somebody or they'd get the perception 
that I wasn't interested in him. So if Pat's hearing this, he's going, oh, no, man, I, did I really do that? Okay, if he did, I'll take your evaluation for it, Steve. Now you want to make a policy point. Go ahead. Yes, as far as, 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 uh, as a politician, in, in Charlotte Mecklenburg, we voted on the stadium years ago to not have it. 63% voted no. Pat McCoy gave us the middle finger and did it anyway. On the light rail, he boasts about the light rail. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the light rail that 5% of the people use and the other 95% of us on these cruddy roads get no roads. So then, it's, it's pretty clear you're not going to be casting a vote for Pat in the primary. Who are you supporting? I'm supporting Marjorie Eastman, and I asked the North Carolina people to stand up as grassroots voters and put these career politicians out of business. Marjorie is the only one out of that group of three men that have served this country in the military and in a combat zone. She is a mom. She, ha- she is the one we need to stand up and put our vote behind and put these people out of business. Fair enough. Steve, I appreciate the call. And uh, at the risk of sounding like Pat, thank you for your service in addition to thanking you for the call. Now, one guy who's had better success doing the South Carolina sidestep is old Lindsey Graham. Hard to believe that, because I went to Congress with Lindsey, and now he is the senior senator from South Carolina. And what was interesting about that whole deal was that, uh, you know, when we got there, the, the senior senator was a man from down to Edgefield, County down there, Jay Strom Thurman. Hey, you're a fine young man to create your community. Well, Lindsay, usually I got bones to pick with Lindsay. Uh, in this instance, I'm with him on this issue. Fox News Sunday, Lindsay is talking about what comes up in the U.S. Senate tomorrow. It ain't going to be pretty. This is cut seven. Well, Wednesday, we're going to take a vote by Senator Schumer, you know, is insisting we vote to legalize abortion to the day before birth. That would become the law of the land, but they don't have the votes for it. I have a bill that would outlaw abortion at 20 weeks. We're one of seven nations in the world that allow abortion on demand at 20 weeks, the fifth month in pregnancy. So Congress will continue to debate this issue. The states will finally have control over this. And here's the one common theme. If you don't like the outcome, outcome of the abortion debate, now you can kick people out of office who actually vote. Before, you were shut out. You had no avenue. Five judges, six judges, seven judges determined the, when life begins and how it ends, and I think that was wrong from the start. And uh, in this instance, Lindsay is correct. That Roe decision of a half century ago is bad law. It is an invented right. Justices spoke in their opinions of penumbras and implications in the Constitution, and somehow the right to privacy, the right to abortion, all this would do if the ruling, in fact, is validated, uh, would be to return it to the states. So let me give you an example. Colorado, one of my neighbors out in Arizona, Colorado, as a governor, they've got a bill through their legislature to allow abortion, they call it in quotes, two weeks after an infant is delivered. Now, in, uh, in plain speaking, that ain't post-birth abortion. That's infanticide. And surely a lot of folks who categorize themselves as pro-choice 
And I used to get a lot of votes, although I was a solid uh, uh, pro-life voter in the Congress because we had common ground. I'd say to folks, look, chances are you're not for abortion on demand and you're not for taxpayer-funded abortion. And we would even find agreement on that polarized issue, at least right there. But let me tell you, and I know there are a lot of Democrats say, hey, wait, but we're good people. I'm a North Carolina Democrat. I'm not one of these radicals. And this is an audible triple B. We're going to move down to, to cut nine. Let me take you back to the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte in 2012. The platform committee had omitted the word God from the platform. There was an amendment on the floor to insert God's name into the Democrat platform at the 2012 convention. Listen to the way it went down on the podium. They had to ask for more than one vote. Cut nine. I'll do that one more time. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. In the opinion of the chair, two-thirds have voted in the affirmative. The motion is adopted, and the platform has been amended as shown on the screen. Thank you very much. That happened in Charlotte in 2012. Good, bad, or indifferent, the... the it's as if the, the way the headlines are written, Democrats boo God. Now, not all Democrats, but it started there. And that eminent political analyst, Barney Five, probably would have said, I'm going to tell you, you got to nip it in the bud. Did they do that? No. Now you've got the odd squad, AOC and that bunch, and more radicals. And that's going to be a problem for Democrats in North and South Carolina. We're not going to nip it in the bud. We're just going to start talking about Andy Griffith with noted author John Rayleigh. He's next. It's J.D. for Vince. Andy Griffith with Ronnie Howard, also starring Don Knotts. Yep, there it is. I mean, so early, that monochromatic image from the first season where Francis Bavier didn't even, like, register a credit as uh, Aunt B. That came later. Uh, TV Tuesday... And on our newsmaker line, a, a guy I've gotten to know over the years, and, um, you know, it's interesting. He married one of my, my high school classmates, lovely Miss Kathleen, and they met down in Chapel Hill. And you might think as a guy who went to school in West Raleigh, I might have, no, no, no. Great guy, John Rayleigh, noted author, has a new book entitled Andy Griffith's, let me get this out, Andy Griffith's Manteo. His real Mayberry. And John, I want to welcome you to the program, despite the fact that it points out when I, one of my little uh, quirks as an announcer on real radio, I'm saying Griffith 
like, uh, you know, Foster Brooks swallowing the word. But, uh, John, we welcome you to the Carolina Simulcast. It's good to have you. Congressman J.D., thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, you know, it has been said that writing a book can be a labor of love, but it, it ends up being a labor. In your case, it is the former because as a younger journalist, you got to sit down with Andy Griffith and uh, a guy who grew up way down there toward the Outer Banks. You, you actually got to see the guy uh, and fess up. Do you think the Mount Airy people are going to be upset that, that the angle on your book is that it wasn't Mount Airy that was Mayberry, it was Manteo, North Carolina for Andy Griffith? Wow. Well, well, yeah, a couple of things on that, J.D. So, um, yeah, I would see him around growing up as so many of us did on the Outer Banks. Um, my interview, my one interview with him was a phone interview, and he was very gracious then. Um, as to Mount Airy, um, yeah, I have full respect for the people in Mount Airy, and Andy um, had a lot of good friends he kept up with there. But his real home was Manio, and he, he was very clear on it. He said um, – he told my good friend Angel Corey back in the 90s, he said, Mount Airy is not Mayberry. If Mayberry is anywhere, it's Manio. And and, I, and the proof in the pudding is he lived his life there and he died on that island, his beloved place that formed him as an artist, and that um, he spent most of his life giving back to it. Well, when we think of Andy Griffith, we think of that great sitcom, iconic, everybody knows the theme song, yeah. Uh, in later years, how did Andy look at that being a piece of Americana and television history? Yeah, um, television has changed so much. As Ron Howard told me for the book, though, I mean, that AG show, that's a unique piece of um, of, of of art that's going to live. Um, you know, of Andy's era, the only artist that approached him in range was Jackie Gleason. But but you don't have you know I'd love to see the Jackie Gleason show on reruns but it doesn't happen but you got AG on reruns on Sundance TV Land and MeTV at least four hours every day and uh, I'd call that working watching them at least for me <laughs> and uh, well for years Channel Two and Greensboro would run it as the lead in to the news at six are they still doing that no and that was the biggest scandal here in years when they stopped doing that and it, i still hear from people saying i can't believe they stopped doing that um you know because for so many of us it watching that show just becomes part of our lives and it's like peeling an onion every time you see every time you see a different episode you you, you peel off a different section and you see and it's just i mean that guy andy griffith was a genius and part of my the, the main point of my book is to show how that Alan Fordham is an artist and how he gave back to it, which is a uh, never-told story. And then the other part is the fact that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. I mean, by the time he's 40 years old, he done the AG show and facing the crowd in the Hemingway parlance. He knocked it out of the freaking park. But he gets no credit for this. I mean, the only the only award major award he ever won in his life was a Grammy for his country gospel album. And he would joke about that saying, hell, if I'd have known it was this easy, I'd have got into country music long before. Cause if you mess up, they just overdub it. But he was damn good. As a friend told me when, and you watch as you, you know, JD, I know you watch this show too. And I know a lot of the listeners do when Andy's playing that guitar in the black and white episodes, 
as a friend tells me, he's splintering that wood. Those fingers aren't faking. They're playing. No, he was one gifted musician. Uh, about a minute remains in this segment, John. We're going to hold you over for our pals in the upstate of South Carolina. If there is one fact that people need to know about Andy Griffith they would not know, in your book, Andy Griffith's Mantio, his real Mayberry, what is that fact, John Reilly? Just just the fact that all, all he did for Dare County, where that island is, in the state of North Carolina, I mean, he works with, he worked with Governors Hunt and Governor Easley on education issues. He worked with, um, you know, for that matter, Dean Smith on education issues. And he loved Carolina basketball. Um, J.D., I respect you as an NC State guy, and that's neutral territory for me. And I go back to the Valvano days and love it all. But, you know, Andy, I got to say, he was a diehard Tar Heel. Sorry, well, brother. He, he was more than that. You've recited two Democrat governors, and the thing I remember was uh, – Basically, a swan song on national television was a public service announcement promoting Obamacare. But, hey, it's America. And (laughs) that can go on. So uh, why just very briefly here about the 36, why he he was tempted to run for office, was he not? Yes. um, So it was an the story that's rarely told is several people recruited him to run against Helms, maybe late 80s. And eventually, I think Harvey Gann of Charlotte ran in that race. And Andy um, just, he said no. And it was very wise of him. Oh, yeah, that, that was smart. That was smart. Yeah, now, I want to make sure everybody knows. not like a very public job. That's true. Now, Sunrise Books in High Point, my hometown, yes. Saturday, 2 to 4, a book signing. You're going to do a little reading, too, right, John? Yes, sir, J.D. I appreciate it. Well, good. We're going to have people come see you at Sunrise Books in High Point on Saturday, 2 to 4. John Rayley, hang in there with me. There is more to come. It is J.D. for Vince. Stay tuned. In for Vince, our special guest on the Newsmaker line, noted author John Rayleigh, his new book, Andy Griffith's Mantio, his real Mayberry. Hello, John. Can you hear me, brother? Are you there? Hey, J.D. Good. You're there. Now, just want to talk a little more about Andy, and our audience is tickling the state line between North and South Carolina, but I, I think of the great summer productions uh, up in the western part of the state it's unto these hills in cherokee but down manio way on the outer banks it's the lost colony and it was that latter production that really uh, if we look at andy griffith's uh, dramatic roots was that the role that made him hey jd you were breaking up a bit first to my south carolina friends i'd like to say my book is published by Arcadia Publishing in beautiful Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Thank y'all. Um, a shout out so, down there to the low country. And those upstaters yes, appreciate sir. it because and, the upstaters um, are avid readers. Back in my days at Channel 10, we had a reading program. And those little children are all grown up and they're likely uh, book customers now. But <laughs> I digress. My, my question <laughs> was, we, we think about the lost colony. Was that 
the uh, the breakout role for Andy, at least in terms of uh, the Southeast? Yeah, um, it is kind of a complicated story. Um, certainly, Andy getting to that lost colony and being in that was just the breakout of his soul in general. He'd never been to the coast before, and he fell in love with it. He's like John Denver going home to a place he'd never been before in the summer of his 22nd, 27th year. For Andy, it was his 20th year probably. But, you know, he worked his way up to playing Sir Walter. He became part of that great artistic cast. But but most important, during his off hours, he worked out his comedy routines. And it's become conventional wisdom to say what it was was football was his breakthrough. And that was uh, a lost colony buddy did help him engineer that. But that was in 1953. But in 1952, in the summer of 1952, and my parents were in that audience at the Old Shrine Club in Nags Head, about 11 o'clock on a Friday, Saturday night, Andy, after being in the Lost Colony, steps out on that stage. He's rail thin, he's sweating, he's scared, but he breaks out with his Hamlet routine that took him right to the top, and he knew it by the applause that was unending after that, after that show. And he said, that was when I knew I made it as a star. And he said, I'll spend the rest of my life paying this place back, this island. And he did. So a Southern Shakespearean satire, that, that's the breakthrough. And, of course, yeah, later what it was was football. And it's Andy Griffith, the comic, and the tour. But a little later in the 50s, a face in the crowd, Elia Kazan's landmark motion picture. Uh, does that put... Andy, in the realm of genius in that lead role, does that really define him cinematically and for all times? Yeah, I I think so, J.D. I mean, um, you look at, by the time Andy is 40 years old, he's done the AG show and he's done Face in the Crowd. In the Hemingway parlance, he has knocked out his competitors. I mean, only Jackie Gleason comes close. And, you know, you don't see the Jackie Gleason show on reruns every day. But you see the AG show on at least four hours a day on, on all the different stations on reruns. And Elia Kazan took Andy to school and facing the crowd. Andy, Andy thought he had his chops down. But you got to remember, even before No Time for Sergeants, this was his debut film. And he's working with Elia Kazan. And both Kazan and Andy were robbed by not having Oscars. But as Ron Howard told me, Doing that movie, going through all that method acting and exploring his soul took Andy to places he didn't like to go. Hmm. It's interesting. You mentioned Ron Howard, and I, I recall an anecdote. As a kid, he found out he was making more money. He was a big Dodgers fan. Uh, both uh-huh. Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax were holding out for six figures, and little Ronnie Howard was making that money on The Griffith Show, which prompts this question. Actors, well, Sonny Bono said it to Newt when we were in Congress, when you're hot, I've been hot and I've been not. When you're hot, you got to get things going. Andy, when he stepped away from the Andy Griffith show, yeah, there was the vehicle Headmaster and then a kind of slapdash sitcom uh, resurrection of Andy Griffith in a different role that didn't really work. Were there dry spells for him or was there enough income to where it was no big deal and it fit that lifestyle there in Manium? Yeah, well, you know, Andy, like so many of our parents, he was a child of the Depression, so he was always worried as hell about money. And he just loved the work. I mean, he never eclipsed what he had accomplished by 
the time he was 40, but he never stopped daring. I mean, even those TV movies where he's with Johnny Cash and stuff playing villains, I mean, he's taking chances. And it's just that artistic courage. And his one of his last roles, Play the Game, I've got a document where initially he agrees to do that role for $22,000. I mean, you got Andy Griffith for $22,000. That says how much he wanted to stay in the game. He's in his 80s, but he loved so much that art, so much that making movies, and he was so good. Man, I, I hear that low wage, and I think of our buddy Earl Owensby, who had the soundstage in Shelby. Man, if Earl would have known he could have copped Andy Griffith with that kind of uh, economical fee, well... We could have seen some more homegrown products. One final question about Andy's uh, uh, television career. Matlock, of course, kind of a southern fried Perry Mason. Uh, and Maybe that's wrong to say, but it's kind of a one-liner about it. He even took Matlock back there to the Outer Banks, did he not? Yeah, J.D. And the amazing thing about Matlock, I mean, Andy had three comebacks. There was his, there was his Grammy album, there was his movie work, and there was Matlock. And again, this is a, a, almost a record in American TV for somebody to come back in their, in, in their 60s after suffering from Gillian Barre and major back problems, and he's just nailing it. I've, got friend, I've interviewed people that worked on Matlock, and they said, we should have had a T-shirt, I've died and gone to Matlock, because Andy was so cool. He ran such a smooth set. He was old school. He got it right on the first take, and he was out by Friday afternoon and having somebody fly him from Wilmington back to Manio, he'd pour him a glass of white wine and ride on his plane and look down at his world. I mean, the guy had it made. He did do Matlock. He did do the hunting party in Manio, a double episode, 1989, and that was another gift he gave to 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 his beloved island. And a great gift for yourself or for a loved one is the brand new book by John Raley, Andy Griffith's Manio, his real Mayberry. My hometown of High Point, I used to make that drive from Greenville-Spartanburg up to High Point. Not that bad. Saturday afternoon, 2 to 4, at Sunrise Books in High Point, North Carolina. A book signing by our pal John Riley. And uh, John Riley, excuse me, brother, I about called you the life of Riley. I hope you live the uh, life of Riley and don't end up on the wrong side of the rails with his new book. I think you're going to be just fine. Thanks for your time. I, thank you, J.D. I'm just trying to keep the bridges between the ditches. Amen. That's that's good advice, whether you go to school in Chapel Hill or Raleigh, or even maybe down there at Clemson. <laughs> thanks, thanks a bunch, John. Take good thank care. Thank you, J.D. Thank you, South Carolinians. Yes, indeed. For Vince Coakley, J.D. Hayworth, stay brave, stay free, stay tuned. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.